This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So this is Alain Bouchard, and um, I'd like to uh, welcome you to our podcast, COVID-19 and the heart. And this time we're going to talk about the adult population. Joining me today are Dr. Mustafa Ahmed, Chief of Cardiology of Interventional and, and Structural Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. David Fino, uh, cardiologist at Shelby Baptist Medical Center. So I uh, would like to, to talk a little bit about this, this virus. I mean, obviously, we uh, and how it affects the adult population, and particularly our patients. We know this virus. I mean, the coronavirus is actually uh, well-known. It's a, a positive strand RNA virus with a very large genome. And it's affected um, human mostly in, its, um, in the alpha and beta type. Uh, it's actually the cause of a common cold in about 10 to 30% uh, of the cases. Uh, and we know that it, it works on the ACE receptor, ACE2 receptor that we can find um, in the lungs primarily, but as well as in the heart in different places. Um, the infectivity of the, of the COVID-19 is actually greater than the uh, influenza virus. But the coronavirus has done some damage in the past. We've all heard of uh, MERS, which was uh, this uh, respiratory illness in the Middle East men as well as about 10 years ago, uh, where we had the SARS-1, uh, where uh, it caused an uh, epidemic, um, uh, severe acute respiratory distress uh, disease in South Korea. Uh, now, this is also the SARS, but it's the SARS-CoV-2, a relative uh, that came out of, the, out of the blue, and now has caused patients to really have a lot of problem, mostly a respiratory problem. Again, in, in our patient population, it's estimated uh, that about 80% have mild disease, but probably 15 to 20% have moderate to severe disease and can have their heart affected. And particularly, we know that patients that are, have problems with hypertension, diabetes, and uh, have obesity are more prone to get the disease, to get the illness, and get quite sick from it. Um, we've known of a case report now since February. Uh, we have single center reports and now uh, multiple center uh, report. And here with us, uh, Dr. Ahmed had presented actually a webinar approximately a month ago about some of the cases uh, that we, you had at the university hospital. Dr. Ahmed, would you like to maybe elaborate on some of your patient population and how they are affected by COVID-19? Sure. Um, you know, what's interesting about this conversation is it's going to be very different than a similar conversation four weeks ago. And I have no doubt that in four months, uh, there'll be a very different conversation as we understand more and more about COVID and its very different effects. Um, there is no such thing as an expert on COVID in the heart. Um, anyone claiming to be so just has their own experience to talk about. And again, uh, it's a time of great humility when it comes to treatment in medicine because all of us that have trained for a long time on issues that 
we considered ourselves experts on was suddenly hit with this new challenge. And, and it was a very um, amazing thing when it first came out because we really didn't know anything about it. When it, you know, when it comes to heart disease, clearly has been demonstrated in the initial experience is patients with heart disease do worse. They are more likely to be more affected with heart disease. They're more likely to be more affected by the respiratory disease. And when it comes to the patients, what we call high risk. So when we say to people, you know, you may want to isolate, you may want to be even more careful than other people. Heart disease ranks right up there with the, with the reasons for that. And when it comes to the patients that have not done well, the people that are dying, the people that are at risk of dying and end up in intensive care units, like you were saying, the very obvious thing we saw was there's just a preponderance. There's a, there's a, there's more heart disease in that population. And we believe this is a risk factor. And so the, the topic of COVID and heart disease is, is very germane to the entire conversation about COVID and people getting sick. And, you know, the, the initial webinars we had were, hey, how do we all get together and talk about this thing that's about to hit everyone? Um, and what do we do? Because the way I put it back then is suddenly apples were not apples and oranges were not oranges. Let me give you an example of that. And I'm sure you guys are going to chime in. Uh, Dr. Fino is in a, you know, a busy practice. Dr. Bouchard, you are. And I'd love to, to hear what, what you guys think. But when we first, let's talk about heart attacks. So someone comes in with a heart attack and usually you, you say, what you know, you've got this chest pain as the presenting factor, sometimes shortness of breath, sometimes other things. But really what nails a diagnosis of an acute heart attack is a heart tracing called an EKG or, where, or in England where I was from, uh, an ECG. And that heart tracing has a very distinct pattern. So when you go to an emergency department with chest pain, you'll notice there is a rule where we say within five minutes, you have to have had this, this uh, EKG. And there's a pattern called ST elevation, which says there is definitely acute damage happening, and we need to get you into a cath lab, which is where the heart procedures are done, immediately. And there's a whole field which is based on getting that patient into the procedure room as fast as possible in a race against time to open that artery back up. And when COVID first came along, it was a scary time for proceduralists because people were coming in and you were having to wear all this masks and gear and protect your whole teams and not let people in the hospital get effect, you know, infected by the thing, not let healthcare workers get exposed and at the same time protect patients. But what we noticed at the beginning was suddenly we were seeing these ECG, EKG patterns. We were taking the patient to the cath lab for the procedure. But we weren't seeing what we usually see. So what do we usually see in a heart attack? We see an outline of what was meant to be an artery, then boom, it stops. It gets completely cut off, and the rest of the artery is missing. And then we put a wire through there, the stent in there, fix it, uh, uh, the acute blockage, and blood flow is restored. And if you can do it quick enough, you save heart muscle. What we were seeing in COVID was that same pattern of disease, but there was no blockage. So... What you noticed was a slow flow throughout many bits of the artery, but this blockage, you'd look for it. You'd take different views, and you go on the left, and you go on the right, and you'd be like, this is unbelievable. You know, you, usually you look at the EKG, and you know exactly where that damage is going to be, 
But then you're looking at this picture of the heart, the arteries that you've just taken, there was no blockage. So this whole field started about everyone suddenly started saying, what is this? Um, there's no blockage there, but there's something going on because it's led to chest pain, it's led to the acute injury, and it's led to people not doing well. And we don't 100% know what that was. We know it's there, and it's, it's changed the way we think about heart attacks. I, I do want to underscore that still we treat heart attacks like heart attacks. You take the patient, you look for it, and most of the time there's a heart attack there. But now we are in the back of our mind is, have you had fever? Have you had a cough? Have you had been uh, exposed? Are you in a high-risk situation? Because it may turn out over time that the treatment for those differ. You know, early studies have shown that they may be due to little bits of clot going, being shared into the end of the arteries in a, in a, a process known as, you know, distal thrombosis. And is that causing a blockage and damage? And we are still to learn a lot about this, but I think I'd love to hear what you guys say now, but I think we are seeing different patterns of heart disease and the, even the classic heart attack, you know, the bread and butter of a, interventional cardiologist, uh, even that's changed uh, due to COVID. Interesting. Um, there was a case report actually from Italy, a patient that had ex- this exact presentation and um, unfortunately de- uh, died, uh, but it had classic um, you know, ST elevation, myocardial infarction, or what we call now a type 1 myocardial infarction. They did the autopsy and they never found any evidence of uh, myocarditis. Um, what are we dealing with? Is it just microvascular and we can't see? Or was this um, a stress cardiomyopathy or Takasubo, which is also presents with ST elevation, positive troponin, <clears throat> but usually has more of a classic ballooning aspect of the left ventricle? Um, I, I, I very much echo your comments, Dr. Ahmed and Dr. Bouchard. Um, I can tell you that from a perspective of a community hospital where, you know, these folks come 50 miles to, to come to a 250 bed hospital. The, the presentation that we see is, is identical to a heart attack or um, what we call an acute coronary syndrome. And it's relatively few of them that have that ST segment elevation that you mentioned, uh, Dr. Ahmed, what, what I've noticed is an awful lot of people who have what we call congestive heart failure, they have a failure of the heart to pump adequately according to the needs of the body. And the difficult part there is what exactly is the problem with the heart, which is exactly what you're alluding to, Dr. Bouchard. Is it a primary blood vessel problem? where the blood vessel is not delivering blood adequately? Is it an infectious problem where the COVID bug is getting inside the muscle of the heart and creating myocarditis? Is it a hormonal thing where an adrenaline surge causes this um, ballooning of the heart that you mentioned called Takotsubo? Is it a combination of all of these things? And even more troubling is once you get past the initial electrocardiogram that you mentioned, Dr. Ahmed, the, there's absolutely no agreement on what to do with these patients whose hearts are failing. The, the treatment paradigm can range from very conservative care 
to immune therapies, IVIG, and these very expensive therapies to essentially partial cardiac replacement therapy with uh, machines called ECMOs that recirculate the blood. And the trouble is there's just no agreement. There's just no experience. Everything that we're finding out is based on a single center, often a single operator. We know that uh, at least 20% of folks with positive troponins do these are the markers for a heart attack that Dr. Ahmed mentioned, at least 20% of them do poorly. And of those that do poorly, it seems to be a combination of respiratory and cardiac failure in, in those that die. And then we also know that in the lab, the virus can get inside the heart muscle. And what it actually does there is unclear. The contribution of these inflammatory markers, these cytokines to a sepsis-like syndrome, you know, that changes the pressures in the heart and the loading is, is completely unclear. So what we know is they're very sick and we know they need the highest levels of care, the intensive care unit. What exactly to do is just a complete and utter mystery to me. Yeah. The, <clears throat> I think that this, uh, I remember in March, <clears throat> but sorry, I, I was reading a tweet. Um, it was actually on March 10, and it came from um, this, please stay home. Um, the um, It was actually from the front line in the ICU in Seattle, describing this the, these patients. This was described by, by an intensivist, um, this, describing this patient with acute respiratory illness on the ventilator, and uh, day four or five starting to to do better and, and improving, and the following day, developing the shock, you know, syndrome with this heart function that went from the 45 to 50% range to less than 10% and developed this, this probably this myocarditis. Uh, so we know that to elevation of troponin, which is this enzyme released, um, when the myocardial cell is affected, you, we know it's related to prognosis. I mean, we we treat patients with different condition. Whenever we have a positive troponin, it's usually uh, related to prognosis. And um, and obviously, we have to decide: is it what we call a primary MI? What Doctor Ahmed described, you know, with a, an occlusion of the coronary artery, or is it um, a, some damage or myocardial injury uh, caused by this severe illness? Um, or is it related to any coronary artery disease at all? This is where I think we have to really use all of our clinical acumen and uh, take treat patients, um, you know, obviously individualize our treatment and, and making it in the context of the clinical situation, whether truly this is, you know, a myocardial infarction that we should take to the cath lab uh, versus um, a, um, a myocardial damage that we can treat medically. Yeah, I think um, we're all in agreement that COVID um, and heart disease are a bad combination. And COVID itself can lead to heart problems with different experiences from different centers. Like like you, you were both just saying, we got some reports from uh, some countries that were saying, you know, wow, we're seeing this large population of people that are coming in with heart failure, um, the heart muscle's gone weak, and we need to come up with strategies to com- completely get ready for this uh, 
you know, this uh, large population that's about to present. But then we'd get other experiences from other countries like Italy and they'd say, you know what, we're seeing little bits of maybe damage, but we've not actually seen any, hardly any major effects where the heart itself has, has, has had that effect. And we're seeing a very, very different um, presentation in our population. It seems like every country is um, maintaining a, uh, its own different kind of experience. One question that did come up early on was, should we treat heart attacks differently for, for multiple reasons, uh, exposure, um, uh, unknowns, uh, you know, we talk about evidence in medicine. Uh, I remember when I went to medical school, one of the questions I got asked in my interview was, hey, what's evidence-based medicine? And I remember having read about, say, I have no idea what they're talking about, but I remember reading about this thing and saying, oh, yes, you know, it's, it's a field where we draw on studies and, and science, the scientific process to inform what we do. And what's amazing now is there's very little evidence base uh, for, for just what's happening in the world. And so one of the conversations that happened early on was, gosh, should we, given all these unknowns, should we treat heart attacks differently? Should we go back to the 1980s and use a clot-busting medication and give this to all the patients for the reason that we don't need to go and expose ourselves, uh, the healthcare workers, the other patients, and we don't need to put the patient under a procedure, which which is uh, still an invasive procedure with, with the unknowns of that and COVID. And so in China, we were seeing people saying, you know, we're going to take all primary heart attacks to go as far as to take certain guidelines and say that is an accepted primary treatment. Um, you know, and then in England, uh, the, the, the cardiac society is elected to say, you know what, we're going to make sure that we're going to keep providing the usual standard of care for heart attacks um, and go in there and try and fix them. And, and David, I'd love to hear what you think about this. At UAB, um, you know, we've kept primary, we call it primary PCI, or we've basically said, you know what, we'll take the precautions required, but we're going to take every single person that's suspected of having a heart attack within reason. And we're going to go in there and try and open it back up because in our mind, the worst case scenario is one, you give clot-busting medicines to people that already may be at risk from uh, taking those clot-busting medicines. And two, you know, it's not an efficacious a treat as a treatment, and it may lead to a, a large population of people dying through a through heart disease. Uh, sorry, through through a heart attack that you don't open. Have, have you guys been having those same conversations? Identical, Mustafa. Uh, so the we get a number of patients from outside medical centers that are fifty miles away in these small towns, and they'll have ST segment changes there. And it's, it's almost caused us to pause because so many people were taken back to the lab have no blockages that, you know, we seek to treat there and have, you know, what we call primary treatment for a heart attack, right? Um, and the problem is, is that if you just give this clot busting medication blindly, you may give a potentially lethal medication to someone who doesn't even have a blockage. So the discussion was that is there a role for conservative therapy even in the event that patient is having the largest kind of a heart attack, you know, the ST segment elevation heart attack that you were mentioning a minute ago? And there's no great answer. I think certainly 
when you have, um, as we, as we moved forward with this, what our approach was, the, the more clear cut the EKG findings were, then we just, um, bit the bullet, as you say, and everybody put on PPE. And the, the key there was you just assume the patient is COVID positive and actively shedding virus into the air. And uh, I'm sure that's what you're doing at UAB as well. And then if you have a patient that's not quite so clear cut or they're doing well so far with, you know, conservative therapy, then there's a um, real role to step back and say, do we need to expose this patient one to the risk of the procedure that may end up showing all their arteries are fine anyway? And secondly, do we need to uh, expose the staff? And I think that everything has, what's happened for, for the practice down South of Birmingham, everybody's just paused and thought the elective procedures are canceled. So we have time. The patients are sicker. So they tend to have more, doctor's inputs. And we have an opportunity to say, on whom is an interventional strategy up front really the right answer? Or do we have an opportunity to possibly pause and think, is there a conservative therapy we should try in an otherwise stable patient? So I I would suspect that as we move forward, we're going to do exactly what you've found is that just take a very aggressive strategy with everybody and assume everyone's COVID positive. The elective surgical center associated with my hospital is back open for business. And the approach they're taking with everybody who comes in for a carpal tunnel surgery or an epidural is that can we just assume they're COVID positive? and proceed. And I think that's basically what we have to do for the next few weeks until we see what happens now that everything's reopened. Um, As far as outcomes are going to go, I think that everything is in light of the relative concern with the uncertainty about who is going to develop a fulminant illness due to the virus itself. And that concern is basically this, nobody knows. So I think it's just a two-step process is, is what is it that we always do? And do we feel like that's appropriate in this particular patient? So um, Dr. Bouchard, I'd like to ask you, uh, you also have a, a, a phenomenal practice. And um, how have you seen that change? Um, as in, you know, the waiting room, that used to have 30 patients in it now has, you know, with five at a time sitting 10 feet apart and the chair washed down afterwards. And how's, how's things happening as, as, as we start to reopen, how's the process changed with uh, getting tests and patients coming in to see you and this whole amazing new field of, uh, or they would take offense at me saying it's new since people have been doing a great job with it for a long time, but telemedicine. So I'd love to hear your experiences on cardiology, COVID and, and uh, telemedicine. Um, um, you know, I think the, what, what's important for us, you know, at this stage is continue the, uh, the guideline directed medical therapies for our patient. And, um, you know, whether we do this, you know, using telemedicine or actually in person, uh, this should be at least, um, one of our priorities. 
Um, we obviously, we're seeing the patients in the office, mostly the ones that are sick, that are really um, needing some help. Um, they're decompensated either from uh, the point of view of their angina or, the, or from the point of view of their heart failure. And uh, we have um, uh, integrated the telemedicine as part of our practice now uh, to help also with social distancing. Uh, since we have uh, fewer patients coming uh, to the office uh, every hour, possibly, you know, could be uh, two patients uh, and uh, with um, with some uh, telemedicine uh, appointment that are mixed uh, between that. And it's really helped um, implement uh, this distancing that I think is at this point now and for the near foreseeable future is going to be required. Uh, we have, obviously, we screen our patients in the office when they come. Uh, we provide them with masks, some of them uh, Dr. Fino's mask. Uh, and, um, and also it's... Um, uh, it's difficult as a physician because, you know, we're still practicing the distancing, obviously, except when we have to do the physical exam uh, where we get closer to the patient. But we uh, uh, make sure that we clean the room, you know, between patients. So the, the whole flow has really changed. Now it's kind of a mix between telemedicine and, um, and uh, patients in the office. We are ramping back up. We're currently at 50% of our capacity and probably within the next week uh, or so we'll be within 75%. Uh, again, you know, changing a little bit the flow uh, of the visit. And I'm sure it's the same with you, uh, Dr. Fino and, and Ahmed in your office. Identical, Elaine, identical. We're seeing that the initial overabundance of caution, which is, was totally appropriate given the circumstances um, is giving way to a different workflow with uh, a whole group of patients being seen telemetrically uh, with audio and video. And then the people who actually need to be seen for a wound check or if they're um, have a physical exam finding that might be concerning for something acute, like a blood clot, um, they're actually coming into the office. So, I, I, I don't know what your both of your opinions are, but I think this will change medicine forever. And um, certainly certainly it has changed my practice already. You know, there's um, absolutely things like uh, telemedicine. Uh, it's one of those things where I'm like, where have you been my whole life? I mean, this is uh, incredible. The patients love uh, some aspects of it. We do. Um, and there's things where you're just going to have to see people in person. But there's some aspects, you know, when you talk about, changing the face of medicine. There's some aspects I've seen change and I'll call them collateral damage that are very concerning to me. So usually if you have a tight valve, let's say an aortic valve called aortic stenosis, you know, you get some shortness of breath and you get tired and you present to your doctor, they listen to you, they hear a murmur and they'll, they'll get a scan, which will show, you know, there's a actual, um, tight valve there and that and then you send them to whoever to fix it but now we've seen that patient present uh, with a cardiac arrest um, more than several times in the last few weeks present after their heart stops and have to get resuscitated and if they're fortunate come to hospital the heart attacks that we're seeing many of them are presenting later uh, instead of after being able to fix them within one to two hours which is where you can really really help someone 
we're seeing this up to 48 or 72 hours and so much damage has been done, you're chasing time backwards. And we're seeing uh, presentation after presentation that I would call a late presentation or a catastrophic presentation, typically because I'm guessing people don't want to seek medical care. And there, there is campaigns starting in uh, throughout the country, different countries and local communities to try and tell people, if you need help, you need to go and get help. Um, if your chest is hurting and you're short of breath and you're worried you're having a heart attack, COVID, the COVID crisis doesn't change the fact you're having a heart attack. And there's no planet on which staying at home, waiting it out, um, is going to benefit anyone in that circumstance. Um, that's one of the things I worry about. And who knows how long this whole thing is going to last and until we know what processes to put in place to, to make everything streamlined. But that's, that's one of the things that's changed immediately that's that damage we're not seeing. I, I will tell you of one case of a someone that had a surgery on their leg and sat at home and all their appointments with the orthopedist were cancelled because COVID came along and then suddenly all their appointments with the follow-up and the primary care were cancelled, of course, because COVID came along and it happened to be in that three, four, five-week period and the patient just sat at home and stayed still in a cast. And lo and behold, they turn up to hospital with the hugest clots throughout their entire leg all the way up into their lung a few weeks later. That's the kind of thing that hasn't been seen yet. There's all these effects and deaths from heart, you know, COVID. But, but there's this whole other side, which arguably is even bigger, maybe multiple fold bigger of what we're seeing not happen uh, for that. So that's something I think important for, for people to talk about. I think we uh, we need to give our patients the message that uh, it is safe to go visit the doctor at their office. It is safe to go to the hospital. It's probably the safest place you know, to go because of all the precautions that have been taken. Yes, it's the dynamics are quite the same, not quite the same. Uh, you know, uh, for most cases, we don't allow a visitor, you know, with the patient, but the patient is tested all the precautions are taken. And um, we need to really um, tell our patients that, you know, they need help. We're there for them. Um, and, and definitely if you're a patient or any, anyone, stay as fit as you can. Um, be in the best shape you can, uh, keep your medical conditions under the best control you can. Now, more than ever, people need to be paying close attention to things that we know do bad in the long run. But now with this coming along and the unknowns of potential of infection at any time until some vaccine, you know, if it ever comes along, but let's say one to two years, until that time, people need to be in the best shape they can. And that's something we're telling a lot of people. Uh, don't lose attention to that important detail. So, so gentlemen, we've talked about how COVID-19 can affect the heart. It can present as a, a myocardial infarction uh, or where the uh, artery is completely occluded with a thrombus and we have to treat with a stent, which is actually still uh, the best treatment for patients with myocardial infarction. I know there was some discussion at some point about going back to the lyrics. Uh, you know, I think this is a mistake. I think the, uh, the best treatment for our myocardial infarction patient, whether they're positive COVID or negative COVID, they should come to the hospital and uh, we reopen the artery. Another manifestation is heart failure, acute heart failure or worsening heart failure. Again, you know, prompting the patient to really uh, seek medical attention, uh, either calling your physician's office or coming to the hospital to be treated. Uh, and um, these are, you know, obviously uh, conventional treatment they provide to the patient as well as, um, you know, respiratory support for the patients that need it. 
But I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the treatment of this virus, per se, and the antiviral, you know, treatment. And I'd love to hear, uh, for example, if any of you are involved in some of the trials, uh, just briefly, uh, you know, just to mention that we have uh, the antiviral treatment, the uh, chloroquine, as well as uh, hydroxychloroquine. And there's been a lot of discussion uh, about that in the public, particularly when it's combined with as, with Zithromax. Um, again, none of these uh, medications are recommended per se, unless you participate in the trial. Another treatment, antiviral medica- medication is remdesivir. Uh, which is given um, intravenously on, on a daily basis. Um, again, I'd like to know uh, there's not enough data right now to recommend this treatment, but current studies are ongoing. And um, I'd like to know, Dr. Ahmed, at the university, I'm sure you have uh, several trials that are ongoing for treatment um, using antiviral medication for these patients. Yeah, Um I think really important what you just said is um, nothing is known. Um, treatments that I thought can be beneficial may be very harmful. You talk about the heart and and uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, but we also have to, anyone on that needs to also realize the potential effects that can have on your heart rhythm and the heart tracing. So absolutely, um, trials are the way to go and find out what's, what's happening. Um, the trials that are ongoing and if possible, uh, patients are, are getting into them uh, that present the antiretroviral that you said, uh, the antiviral uh, remdesivir. Um, that's not, now just been, I believe, approved, but that's one of the trials that was ongoing. There's trials of um, nitric oxide, uh, a vasodilator, so something that dilates the arteries of the heart, and that is ongoing. There's trials with a uh, the um, plasma therapy of a convalescent patients that have had COVID and uh, that the plasma is isolated with the potential immune benefits of that given to very sick patients to see if that can help them, uh, trial, um, you know, mechanical support as well. So m- many different possibilities and trials are going on and will continue to go on. So that's very good. The uh, Obviously, we have the antiviral, but we have also all this immune-based therapy where we try to modify the host and really help, you know, fighting this infection, uh, convalescent, Plasma, I think it's got some interesting, um, you know, prospect. There's not enough data. Uh, there's also uh, interleukin uh, six, um, which you know is uh, again uh, on on uh, being studied, as well as an interferon, which this doesn't appear to be that much difference. An interesting study going on in Montreal at the Montreal Heart Institute is the study of the anti-inflammatory colchicine, and um, this is obviously for patients that have mild um, uh, mild respiratory distress. These are not hospital patients, and to see whether they could, colchicine could hasten recovery. Um, how about you, Dr. Fino, and uh, any um, uh, trials going on in the Baptist Medical Center? Not, not down at Shelby Baptist. I think the, the attention right now has been on the uh, social network of doctors that have uh, come together on Twitter and basically everyone's experience is being reported in real time. And the trend is everybody gets treated with uh, hydroxychloroquine twice a day and azithromycin daily. And then a lot of these folks are watched carefully for compassionate use of the anti 
viral that you mentioned. The challenge, of course, comes with all of this that we lack the evidence to know what the expected benefit will be, um, except in limited studies, the New England Journal article on remdesivir that um, you both alluded to. The other question that we're all trying to wrestle with is prophylaxis for the healthcare workers. So the Italian data, my countrymen, showed that it seems like the healthcare workers are the ones who basically spread the virus all over the place. And the consequence of that is is what we've seen, particularly in that aging population that is there in Italy. So the question is, do we as healthcare workers um, take the bull by the horns, as it were, and take Plaquenil daily, weekly? And once again, we just don't know the answer. We know that in other countries, that's what folks are doing. Tonic water has been described with quinine. Um, the, the basic fundamental truth of this is that we do feel like we know that managing our lifestyles, comorbidities, staying in shape, is, as, as you both have mentioned, keeping a good weight, exercising daily, staying, drinking plenty of fluids, getting good rest, taking care of any chronic medical conditions, lupus, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, what have you. And then probably considering following up this data very carefully that's coming out of New York as well as the uh, announcements by the various uh, Centers for Disease Control, FDA, so on and so forth. I think that in the weeks to come, we'll have some of those answers and uh, we can proceed with the uh, guidelines of evidence-based medicine that Mustafa alluded to a minute ago. This is very interesting. Obviously, some of that data is starting you know, to come out, but they're very small studies. For example, in hydroxy, um, hydroxychloroquine, or Plaquenil, which is used um, anti-inflammatory also for lupus and rheumatoid patient. There was one study um, that was randomized, but only 30 patients with mild disease. There was no difference. Another study, there was like 62 patients, again, with mild disease, no difference. Um, this was at 400 milligram daily for five days. So people have said, well, maybe that's not enough hydroxychloroquine. So in China, they had 150 patients where they, they gave 1200 milligram, you know, for three days, followed by 800 milligram, very high dose, uh, in patients that had mild to moderate disease. Uh, there was apparently more adverse, adverse event, mostly GI, uh, and there was maybe some decrease in, in C-reactive protein and lymphopenia, but, you know, we, we don't have a whole lot of data. Interestingly, in New York, uh, 84 patients in um, mostly uh, observational study of hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromycin, they noted a uh, 30% increase in the QT interval, which is this parameter on the electrocardiogram that we look at, uh, usually in an in enlargement of the QT interval, particularly when it's greater than 450 or even 500 millisecond can lead to this torsade de point, you know, which is this very dangerous polymorphic ventricular tachycardia and can lead, can lead to, uh, to death. They did not report any, uh, any mortality. Um, so, and then again, another study, compassionate use of remdesivir, uh, 53 patient, single arm, 
no placebo. Uh, they noticed that they, uh, they had, uh, these were pretty sick patients. 30 of the patients were intubated, four on ECMO. Um, and uh, they had uh, at follow-up a median uh, of 18 days, uh, six patients died or 18%. And all they had to compare, of course, is, is the natural course of the disease. Uh, and the natural course of the disease, as the, as previously reported, for example, in Italy, uh, 26% died. Uh, there's some reports in China where there was a mortality for patients on a respirator up to 78% mortality. So, you know, obviously they're small studies. They're, they're, they're not randomized, most of them. Small number of patients. Um, I think it will... Uh, Probably take maybe another few months before we get some answers on multi-centers, you know, randomized trial. Uh, we hope to have more than just decrease um, hospital stay or, or decrease ICU stay. Maybe some improvement in survival. But really, the treat, the real treatment, is going to be the vaccine. And until we have the vaccine, you know, I think we're uh, we're just going to try to kind of work on symptoms and. Maybe improve survival the best we can. Um, you know, whether we accomplish that, I don't know. This really kind of brings me to, to the flu season coming around the corner where we do have a vaccine. And I hope that the COVID-19 has taught us to really, um, uh, to push for the flu vaccine and protect our patient because for the, the patients that are at risk, which are most of our patients, you know, with hypertension, diabetes, heart failure, the penetration of the flu vaccine is only 50 to 60%. So not enough patients are getting the flu shot. And if you have countries, for example, like Spain and particularly Italy, they feel like they're really against this vaccine. Maybe, um, they will, maybe they will change. Um, and uh, this is going to be an eye opener. Uh, so that we can really um, protect our patient with something that can cause as much damage, the influenza virus, uh, but at least we have, you know, something to fight it. So hopefully um, all the practices will really be uh, pushing for the flu shot for our patients and, and patients will be receptive to it. Any lasting opinions? If not, I'd like yeah. to thank you, Dr. Fino, as well as uh, Dr. Ahmed, um, appreciate your help, collaboration. I had a little bit of problem with my internet, uh, but finally uh, uh, we were able to kind of complete this podcast. And uh, we may have to uh, come back a month or two from now just for the updates of the clinical trials that uh, we'll have by then. Pleasure, Lane. Thank you. Thank you very much. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.